Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. We've been doing a short series called Backyard Gospel, and today is the last day of that, and we're doing this because we want to be really, really good at two things. We want to be good at loving God, and we want to be good, really good at loving people as well, just as Jesus commands us to. So today we're going to actually focus on hospitality. When I use that word hospitality, what comes to mind? So just for fun, some people wanted to actually challenge some hotel chains on their level of hospitality. So, you know, when you make a reservation, you have that area where you can say special requests. So in their special request, one guy put, please provide a picture of a dog dressed as a boat captain and place it on my bed. Just trying to be funny and see how they'd respond. They did it. Another person said, can you, can you have a camel in my hotel room? And they did it. Isn't that, that's way more talented than I could ever do. Other images that may come to mind of hospitality are, are Martha Stewart and her perfectly prepared hosting and entertaining skills. You remember Martha Stewart, other than the orange jumpsuit for her, everybody remember the pre-orange jumpsuit. Anyway, some of you may remember even they used to do parody books on Martha Stewart because of her incredibly high expectations and wanting to be like her, better than you entertaining, walking on water just like Jesus and how you uh, meet expectations and, and do everything just so perfectly in hosting skills. Uh, Some people think of that when it comes to hospitality. But despite these messages, Webster's Collegiate Dictionary actually uh, defines being hospitable as given to generous and cordial reception of guests, offering a pleasant and sustaining environment. The Bible talks about hospitality in Hebrews 13.2. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, it's really interesting. The word used there for hospitality in Greek is actually a word that means love of strangers. It appears in the New Testament only two times. The other time this word in this form appears is in Romans 12, where Paul actually charges all of us to be practicing hospitality regardless of our giftedness in that area or not. There's also a noun form of it that's about showing hospitality, and 1 Timothy and Titus both use it in the list of desired characteristics for church leaders, and 1 Peter 4.9 encourages Christians to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's a big issue. It's not mentioned a lot, but it's always mentioned in a, a command. This is a defining distinctive of who we are if we are going to love God and love others well. In fact, First John actually ties the love of God and this together when it says, when we love others, we're showing our love for God. In other words, when we love and serve the community through hospitality, we are actually also loving and serving God through that act of hospitality. So to summarize, and then we can just all go home. No, it's not quite that short of a message today. The Bible teaches that hospitality is to love and serve both fellow believers and strangers, those outside of our faith, with an actual emphasis on loving strangers. And what we mean by loving strangers, what the text means is meaning those outside of the faith, those who are not like us. Biblical hospitality actually has very little to do with Martha Stewart and doilies and clean houses and a well-presented feast. 
Rather, a major aspect of biblical hospitality in these verses is that it has everything to do with how intentional we are in life at welcoming into our lives people who are not followers of Jesus, who think differently, who have different than values than us, welcoming them as friends with the intention of genuinely loving them and building a deep enough genuine friendship that we can talk honestly about life and faith in a supportive way with them. This kind of hospitality is a directive given by God that tells us not to only open our our homes but also our hearts to those who are ideologically opposed to us. To love a stranger has us doing more than just tolerating and being civil to those who do not think or believe like us in our natural friend group, it actually, we see others instead as everyone being image bearers of God. So we're not taken aback by anybody who in the world who has an identity that they've picked up along the way that is not godly, no matter how opposed, no matter how difficult, no matter how hostile they are toward us or our Christian faith, we are still to love, befriend, be hospitable to them. Now that sounds really hard, doesn't it? But God doesn't give us a command that he also doesn't give us the grace to do. I recently heard a story of a group of pastors who had gotten together. They were asking questions about how they could better serve the community. So to one of their meetings, they invited the mayor of their city to the group, and they asked him the question, how can we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as a church, help our city out? So what do you think the mayor said? I'll bet that most of us would think the answer was something like this. Well, you could serve the poor. You could tutor at-risk kids. You could care for shut-ins. You could care for single moms. You could encourage the starting of new businesses, encourage people to be more generous in their pay scales to workers. All those are good things. And we can imagine the mayor saying those answers. But you know what the mayor actually said? He said the smartest thing pastors could do for the city was to start a neighboring movement. In other words, to grow in hospitality. His reasoning was this. He said when the government actually starts a program, the effectiveness of that program is usually about two years and then it gradually begins to fizzle in effectiveness. However, he noted if a program is actually maintained by people in the community, if people in the community helped develop the program themselves, if the people who personally lived around the people who were being reached by this program, who were their neighbors, were befriending them, then the community impact of that program was far greater and sustained much longer. Government leaders have noted the strong benefits in our culture of strong neighbors, having strong neighboring going on in the community. Because people who have close bonds, according to research, with neighbors live longer. In neighborhoods where people actually know the names of their neighbors, crime is 60% lower than other neighborhoods. When natural disasters strike, your neighbors are your actually first, most effective first responders. Uh, Now, though the city being talked about in this wasn't local, it wasn't Westerville, I I suspect that that's actually behind Mayor Kakuzi's championing of the neighbor-to-neighbor program in Westerville. I think that's probably the same thinking behind that program, and it's good thinking. But the question is, who is my neighbor? And we could answer that theologically, but I want to go a little bit more practical today uh, for us. All of us have two, maybe three different kinds of neighbors in our life. We have the geographical neighbor. That's the one we always think about, the people who live next to us. 
But we all have marketplace neighbors, those who we work with and serve in community endeavors. So it's the, it could be your boss, it could be your direct reports, it could be your colleagues, it could be your customers, or it could be the people you serve with on a committee or on a board or an organization in the community. We also have social neighbors, those strangers, those people we rub shoulders with when we are out doing social things. It might be a restaurant you frequent or a a coffee shop or a gym or kids' classes or the sports activities that you're a part of with your family. But but let's make this actually a little bit even more personal today. I'm going to kind of give you an assignment that I'm going to introduce now, and I'm, I'm hoping you will do this this week. I want you to pick... Just one of those types of neighbors. doesn't matter uh, what kind of neighbor, geographical, marketplace, social it is. Just pick one. And I want you, many of you received this on the way in. If you didn't, there's copies by the front door on the way out. It's just a little grid that we supplied in your program for you. And I want you to start writing the names down of the people you know who are in that neighboring group for you. If it's your geographical neighbors, then how many of the neighbors who live around you do you actually know their names? If it's marketplace, how many of the people do you work with do you know as your names? If it's social, how many people do you know their names instead of just the guy who gives me the coffee every day, right? Just pick one and ask yourself, do you know them? Do you know their names? If you're like me, I forget names really easy, so I've got to do extra things to remember them. So that's part of this grid. Be intentional. Write their names down. Or if you don't know their name, write down, hey, the guy who gives me the coffee. And then the next time you see him, find out what his name is. And write it down so you remember it the next time you go there. And then I want you to go one step further. Do you know anything personal about them? About their family? Maybe an example might be my coworker plays basketball after work. You know that. Or, or maybe you know that your neighbor lives there with her husband and three kids, 10, 12, and 15 years old. Or maybe you know that the, the waiter who regularly serves you at the place you frequent is a single dad trying to work their way through school. So maybe you know some personal, write that down so you remember it the next time you see him. And next, I would go one step further than that. Do you know an individual need or desire or dream in their life? Such as my coworker lost their parents to cancer last year and they're struggling through all the probate stuff. Or, or my neighbor is thinking of adopting and has a dream of adopting. Write all these things down so you actually remember and have a little tool that you can pull out maybe once or twice a week and and pray for the people you know by name. Pray for the needs they have specifically and look for God to give you opportunity to show up in their lives and care for those things in just simple ways as you go through your day. The goal of this exercise is for all of us to get a sense of which neighbors do we know and which neighbors do we still need to get to know or might be being invited to get to know better. This tool can add to you as you get, you can add to it as you get a better sense of people, the people who make up your day-to-day life. So one of the things that really inspires me is actually hearing stories from some of you of how you were actually doing this very same thing. A while back, I was having a conversation with Heidi Wilson, one of the elders of our church, and she was talking to me about the reason for her and Andy deciding to move to a brand new build community uh, in a new neighborhood. So beyond the fun of being able to build your own house, pick all the colors and all that stuff, Andy and Heidi wanted to do this specifically to be one of the earlier ones in the neighborhood so that they were one of the first ones to establish a culture of neighboring, of community, of, of, of hospitality in a new neighborhood. 
And it was the reason for it was, was purely this reason. It was, this is a sense of a calling from God for me to build relationships. In fact, I actually, you're going to hear me quote a, a fair amount. You're going to see a video in just a minute from Rosario Butterfield. She's somebody we've been, we've been aware of, but Heidi actually referred a book that she's recently written uh, called Hospitality or the Gospel Comes with House Keys is the title of the book. We were aware of her already. She's a really strong, growing voice the last couple of years, a thoughtful compassionate voice, especially in regard to Christianity and some of the more difficult social issues we're facing uh, today in our culture. Uh, Before Rosario became a Christian, she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. She was a lesbian feminist, an activist uh, to advance the cause, fighting to advance the cause of LGBTQ equality through writing, through speaking, through activism. In 1999, her life intersected with the gospel of Jesus through a friend who did radically ordinary hospitality. She talks about it this way. She says, I was, I was loved and welcomed by a Christian community that I mocked, despised, and rejected. I want you to take a minute. We have a little bit of a longer video clip, but I want you to listen to her share her perspective on hospitality. To me, hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. I was raised in an Italian family. There were some issues in my house that made it almost impossible to have people in. So hospitality didn't really become endemic to my life until I had set up a home of my own. I was a professor at Syracuse. I lived as an out lesbian feminist in New York in our LGBTQ community. Somebody's home was open every night of the week. And there was never a question, where will I go if I need help? Because the community itself is organic and fluid, and that was how we dealt with crises. After I wrote my tenure book, I really wanted to write a book that was on my heart. Why is the religious right such a hateful community? And why do they hate people like me? I was on a war against two things, patriarchy and stupid. So I was really curious to know why relatively decent people would use the Bible in such a hateful way. So I wrote an editorial and it brought all kinds of attention my way, which I didn't really expect. But one of the things it brought my way was a letter from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. When Ken and his wife, Floyd, invited me to dinner, I was happy. I I thought of Ken as my unpaid research assistant. And they were fine with the fact that I I wanted to read the Bible to critique it. That began a research journey that changed my life. But it wasn't research that changed my life. In Ken and Floyd's home, the way that they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing example of the theology that they were teaching. After my first dinner at Ken and Floyd's house, Ken gave me a big hug. Floyd gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. We said, we'll catch up next week. This was fun. Can't wait to do it again. They did not share the gospel with me, and they did not invite me to church. And that was so wonderful, because what it showed to me was that 
They didn't see me as a project. They actually saw me as a neighbor. Now, I didn't step foot in the church for two years, but every week I was in their home. And every week, it was clear that pretty much anything could go. We could ask anything. Ken and Floyd were fine. And that process of dialogue and table fellowship was compelling. It was deeply compelling. I did not come to faith because I stopped feeling like a lesbian. It's not that I got all of my worldview issues just completely cemented with a happy Christian evangelism, not at all. I came to faith because I became convicted that Jesus is who he says he is. Ephesians 4.29 is our watchword, that we are to impart grace to the hearer. I might not agree with everything that you hold to be near and dear, but because we are neighbors, I don't have to say everything that's on my heart. And you don't have to say everything that's on your heart right now. We can put some of our worldview issues aside. And over years of this, the gospel takes on a momentum that is compelling to people. I think we need to give each other the reminder that it's God who saves. It's not about certainly us being perfect or our words being perfect. But show up, we must, in the lives of unbelievers. What comes naturally to me and what comes naturally to you is to hang out with people who are like us. <laughs> people who can maybe finish our sentences, people who don't scare us. But hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors and takes neighbors makes them family of God. It's a great joy to see the gospel bring people together who are supposed to be enemies. And it's a great joy to know that God never gets the address wrong. And if your neighbors aren't people you know yet, there's a blessing waiting for you. She's a powerful voice on this topic and many others, but when Rosario was asked how biblical hospitality differs from what people think of uh, typical Southern hospitality or general hospitality, she reflects on it. She says, it's not entertainment. It's not entertainment. Hospitality is about meeting the stranger and welcoming, welcoming that stranger to become a neighbor and then knowing that neighbor well enough that if by God's power, if God's power allows for this, that neighbor becomes part of the family of God through repentance and belief. It has absolutely nothing to do with entertainment. I mean, think about it. Entertainment, the way we think about hospitality, is often about impressing people and, in a sense, almost keeping them at arm's length from the real us. Martha Stewart and Pinterest is more about you being the entertainer, but hospitality is about your guests and your neighbor. Hospitality is about you moving the laundry pile from the couch to somewhere else as your neighbor walks into the room so that you can make room for them to sit down in the living room. Hospitality is about opening your heart and your home just as you are and being willing to invite Jesus into the conversation. Not to stop the conversation, but to deepen the conversation. It's about preparing your heart, not vac vacuuming your carpet. 
I mean, Butterfield defines hospitality as using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. It's about building friendships that are genuine and strong enough to talk about what really matters and to care about what really matters in their life and in your life as friends and as neighbors. For a friend of mine, uh, that what this looked like, it was about greeting his busy neighbor across the street as he darted in and out of his garage and from his mailbox to his home until one day his neighbor was, out, neighbor was out working on his home and he was obviously doing something that would be a whole lot easier and faster to do with two people, so he offered his help for a couple hours with him. And then periodically they ended up in doing coffee or a beer on the backyard of their homes. Or Eventually he was invited to play on the softball team of the neighborhood softball team. And then he, he likes to tell it God fortuitously gave this miraculous inside the park home run. And all of a sudden all the families from the softball team ended up over at his place. And all their families were there and many of them came to faith. For me right now, in downsizing to a new home, it means that even when I'm overloaded with things needing to get done, when neighbor is walking their dog by the home, I'm thinking I just have to get this other box unpacked because i got to get my cars in the garage because we can't have cars in the street according to the neighborhood rules. Instead, I'm taking time to say hi and talk with them. And because I struggle to remember names, I'm, I'm having my own little version of this that I'm writing names down on. And as I learn information about it, I'm writing that to just help me remember because I struggle with remembering those things so that I can know how to pray and I know how to care and I can be intentional in loving my neighbors and being hospitable. Rosario's story and her habits really challenge me. She and her family live a lifestyle of inviting their neighbors. They use actually this next door app in the neighborhood where she lives. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. I looked it up. It's actually in our area as well. And through that, her family is set up four times a week where they have uh, people over to their house. And then once or twice in a month or whatever, they send out an invitation for all 300 people in their community to come have dinner with them if they want. She just throws it out there on the, ne- on the next door app and she'll say, we'll eat at 6.30, bring some food, feel to come feel free to come over. We're having a cookout, bring a folding chair and bring a friend. And, and she's found that about 10% of the people show up on any given day uh, of the 300 people. So about 30 people show up at one time. And they often have do this with friends from church so that there's already stuff going on. And, and when people come from the neighborhood for the first time, there's other people already there. It doesn't feel awkward for them to be the first ones there. So the church people are there early to help out and and so the, even in the early church, if you look at it, if you really study the early church in Acts and throughout history, the early church, hospitality wasn't an add-on for when you have a spare evening or a Saturday off. It was the focal point of how they lived their life as followers of Jesus. Because as you can see, even in a little bit of Rosario's story that you've seen so far, hospitality, genuine friendship, has the power to bridge across the greatest divides and to solve the biggest relational problems and disconnects. Hospitality, you could argue biblically, is in a sense a form of spiritual warfare. Where the world says that we should be enemies, hospitality makes friends who genuinely care. We, in a sense, call down the power of heaven through hospitality as we embrace our unsaved neighbors to have them experience the love of God. Hospitality helps you realize that your neighbors are struggling with things, just like you, maybe more, maybe less. 
I don't care how immaculate our home looks when the garage door closes. None of us are doing completely great in every area of our lives. We all have things we are dealing with. We are all tired at times and cranky at times and we need help. And if that's true of us who know that God loves us, how much more is that true of people who are uncertain as to whether God is good or loving at all? So, what are some of the obstacles for us that keep us from being hospitable? Because I think almost all of us have a desire to be this more. So if I sent out a survey asking one question, what is it that you wish you had more of in life? I think I'd get back two common answers from almost all of us. We wish we had more time and we wish we had more money. I mean, we'd all say 24 hours a day just doesn't seem like enough to get things done that we need to get done. In fact, I'll bet that someone here is not listening to me right now because you're thinking of things you need to get done. And you're thinking of how in the world am I going to get this done? It's okay, I do that too when I'm in your seat. So, but, you know, and then as far as money is concerned, there's always a growing list of needs and wants that there's just never seemed to be enough. It's just slightly out of reach for us. And the thing about money is, at least with money, there's the opportunity to make more of it. You, you can maybe climb higher in your career. You can get paid more. You can do a side hustle to make more money. You can, you can invest. You can grow your money. But that's not the same with time, is it? We don't get any more time. What we have is what we have. And an even harder thing about time for us is that we don't even know how much time we have left. We just know that it's limited in this life. Time, I think, is one of the biggest obstacles for us in living out this loving of our neighbor and and hospitality like Jesus wants us to, like we long to. There's actually a physicist uh, who once said this, that time is our most valuable non-renewable resource, and if we want to treat it with respect, we need to set priorities. William Penn, the founder of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, once said, time is what we want most, but what we use worst. And isn't it funny? The funny thing about technology is we've got phones and apps and all sorts of things to schedule and organize, and yet most of us are more stressed and and feel more unorganized than we've ever been in many ways. And just to be transparent, I I thought a lot of that would be solved when Empty Nest came along, that I'd I'd be able to even do better than I do on management of time and calendar things, and the the, the calendar would be more secure and they'd be more consistent, and I still continually wrestle with life to make my yeses be aligned with the right priorities in my life. I still say yes to too many things too often. So how do we see Jesus aligning his priorities in the gospel? I think the key to Jesus' priorities and his alignment is found in John 5 when it says, the son can do nothing by himself. Jesus is talking about himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because what the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him All he does, he shows him how to live out his priorities. He shows him what to do every single day. Now, we see Jesus' example of being aligned with the Father's priorities, and I think that at least helps us, at least initially, to get a ballpark of what our priorities should be by looking at Jesus' life. And when you look at Jesus' life, we see him creating space for others to be with others because loving others requires time and intentionality. 
We have more time-saving technology conveniences than we've ever had before, and yet we feel like we still do not have enough time for things. We have machines that wash our clothes and our dishes and vehicles that transport us quickly from one place to another. And we have auto-scheduled bills online and groceries that are delivered on demand. And yet we, with all that time saved, we seem to have less and less time to invest in friendship and being neighbors than ever before. Jesus turned the world upside down in only three years in his life. Nothing was available on demand. There was nothing automated. He moved from place to place at the speed of foot. Jesus was busy, but he was never in a hurry. He always operated out of a sense of urgency, but he never seemed rushed. He had a task to accomplish, and he always still put other people first. He was very present and available, but he never was that out of this unhealthy obligation. Jesus did what he saw the Father asking him to do. He organized his priorities around obedience to God's commands, one of which is that we live our lives with deep friendship, not just to those who are like us, but we practice hospitality, friendship to strangers, to those people who are unlike us. Now, does that mean never having time alone? Boy, I sure hope not because that's going to kill me and I'd totally fail at that because I, by nature, am somewhat on the introverted side of the the scale and I need time alone. And all of us need time alone to, to, to greater or lesser degrees depending on our personality. For Jesus, that meant there were times when he withdrew from the crowds. There were times when he just, even though the needs were there, he stopped healing and he walked away from the crowd and went somewhere else. There were moments he focused on the few while ignoring the fans and the many who were pursuing him. He was able to singularly focus on his purpose without hurry, rush, or burnout because he submitted his priorities to God's purpose for his life. Titus 3.14 I think is helpful. It says, Our people... Speaking to us as followers of Jesus, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. It says we must learn. Seeing the power of God through our hospitality takes learning. It takes devotion. It takes intentional focus. Because we don't love our neighbors and show hospitality by accident or by happenstance whenever circumstances arise and hit us in the face. No, we have to be focused. We have to be devoted. We have to have a sense of peaceful urgency. It requires intentionality, planning, scheduling, margin in our lives, a commitment to boundaries. It means we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives and orient our priorities around obedience to God, prioritize people, and create the margin for people in our lives. See, while Jesus lived in a different time and a different culture, these principles from his life are transferable to ours and will help us create margin that we need in order to be hospitable and loving like he asks us to. Because Jesus observed rhythms in life. He withdrew. He spent time alone. He prioritized time with close friends. He celebrated the Sabbath weekly. And see, either we can take more control of our calendar or our calendar will control us. 
We need to make sure that we are intentional about time to rest and play and time for our closest friends and intentional about time for reaching out and making new friends as well. Time to be with others. Jesus also incorporated neighboring into his everyday life. He didn't add it on as an additional thing. He just made it a part of the way he lived life. So one of the questions I think we can wrestle with is how in what we're already doing in life can we include neighboring in the normal rhythms of what we do, inviting people to do life with us. Maybe that looks like being a whole lot more natural and organic in the way we have our relationships. Maybe asking a neighbor, uh, do you want to do the grocery run together? And we go grocery shopping together. Or maybe it's you ask your neighbor, I'm going to the grocery store, can I pick something up for you? And then you deliver it to them when you get back. And Or or maybe you invite your neighbors over to do movie night with you and your kids and your family. Or, Or maybe you take your late evening conversations out onto the front porch so when a neighbor walks by, you have the opportunity for conversation and relationship. Maybe it's you do projects together with your neighbor. When they're doing something, you offer to help. And when you're doing something, you ask for their help. And you just do things together. If we want to create space for community, we have to control our calendars. Where do you need to take back your calendar just a little bit in your life? Uh, Now, you've probably heard this story before in in, in different ways. A professor places a a big jar, and there's a few big rocks and a a few big uh, box of pebbles and sand on the table. And the professor actually takes the pebbles and the sand, and he he pours them in the jar first, and then he tries to throw the big rocks in there, and they they overflow. They don't all fit. Some of them fit, but they don't all fit. And and, and he's asking the class to guess whether everything's going to fit, and they don't. And so then the professor decides to pour everything out again, separate the big rocks and the sand, and he, this time he puts the big rocks in, and they all fit. And then he takes the sand and, he, and, and the pebbles, and he pours that in, and, and to everybody's surprise, that all fits as well. See, there's this life lesson that we need to constantly be reminded of in that little object lesson. Not all activities in our lives are the same importance. Some are big rocks and some are just little sand and little pebbles. The key for us is to know the difference and to put the big rocks, the most important things in our life, first. And when you do the big priorities first, you discover that more actually gets done with your life, even of the little things. In your life, there there are some activities that are rocks. They're the big ones. What I mean by that is they're, they're the things that define the outcomes of your vision, the, the, your, your mission, your values, your, your dreams for life itself. They're the ones that are the most important to you. If you put those big things in your life first, give them the first of your time and the first of your energy, then you're going to find yourself succeeding well in life. And if you don't, you won't. Your dreams, your goals, your vision, your values, they'll end up being foreclosed upon. Your most treasured goals won't fit. They will not happen in your life if you don't put the big ones in first. And the problem with that is we don't always see that right away. The sad, misleading part of not getting the big rocks in and sometimes putting all the pebbles in first is is the consequences of not doing the most important activities in your life are not always experienced right away and not always obvious right away, right in front of you. They may not come, they may not bite you within 30 days or even 30 years at times. 
There's no notice that you need to do these most important things coming to you in the mail. The most important consequences in life rarely happen immediately, but when they come, they come hard, they come fast, they come in full force. The area I was most challenged in was about Rosario's idea was actually for me personally having more margin time. How she was, she willingly sacrificed money and career to pursue hospitality. She could clearly, she's a wonderful writer, a wonderful teacher. She could clearly have a lucrative career in writing and speaking, but she limits those opportunities in her own life to focus on others around her. Rather than maxing out every minute of her day to get more things done, to make more money, she allows for plenty of time to be readily and extensively available for relationship with her neighbors, for hospitality. Now, what that looks like for all of us is going to look, look different. It's going to even look different in different stages and time periods of our life. So don't compare yourself to another. Just ask yourself the question today, what are the opportunities for hospitality that God is placing in my life right now. The invitation, the overall invitation for this message today is for each one of us to just take a step to be more intentional with this really important command of God to be hospitable, to be aware that time is short and be intentional in how we follow Jesus in being hospitable. Because the fact is when we say, I don't have time to know my neighbor, What we're really saying is, I don't consider getting to know my neighbor as important as these other things I'm doing. Do we live at a pace that allows us to be available to those who live around us? I mean, Jesus had time for interruptions. Do we? What would it take to change the pace of our lives so as to be more available to those who live around us? In his book, uh, The Life You Always Wanted, John Orkberg states, hurry is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life in our day. He actually coins the phrase, hurry sickness. And then he goes on to say, the reason hurrying is so dangerous is because love and hurry are not compatible. Because love always takes time. And time is the one thing that hurried people don't have. So the second obstacle to hospitality is our expectations of what we think we need to do and be. And we, we all know we can easily make idols out of our belongings, carpet things, and put so much energy into all those things. But you know what I think is an even bigger issue for us in, in this regard is how sometimes it is easier for us to go across the world to a third world country or even downtown and minister in areas we don't know anyone. And we don't have lasting relationships instead of reaching the person right next door to us. To minister to people removed from our neighborhood, out there, over there, rather than right next door. Why do we do that? I think it's because it's, it's, it's different. Opening our heart and our lives and being honest and transparent with our neighbors. They see how you live. They watch how you treat others. And it makes it hard to hide. It's harder to reach and love the people right next door oftentimes. But that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us to do. The third obstacle of hospitality is fear. Fear that we don't know what to say or how to help. But you know what? 
Uh, hospitality allows those who don't believe to encounter the gospel and faith through us in more natural ways, the easy ways that they see the action of our everyday lives as we follow Jesus. Biblical hospitality can start by inviting your neighbor to help chop vegetables for a, a meal for that you're going to host for the neighborhood or, or, or talking naturally and curiously with them during that time. It, it can start by taking your kids to the playgrounds and, and getting to know the moms and the dads and the kids there and then maybe actually planning to show up at the same time as some of those moms and dads with the kids. And hospitality can start by taking 15 to 20 minutes to talk with a neighbor walking the dog by your house. But the issue is you can't control when a lot of those things happen. So we have to allow and have the margin in our life for unplanned time to build genuine friendships. We also need to make some really hard choices about how much structured activities our kids are involved with. They don't need to have structured activities, coached activities all the time to build good, solid relationships with other kids and to build the life skills that we want them to have that we're prioritizing for them, especially... They don't need that if we are regularly practicing hospitality and having families and kids over to our home where they get to interact naturally in that environment. In fact, research is showing that unstructured activities that come naturally with hospitality, having people over, can actually be more crucial and critical to the health and skill development of our kids than all the organized sports and things we have them in. In order for the great commandment of loving God and loving others really well to take place. It requires creating space in our lives to build relationships with those who live near us. So how do we walk this out? I want to encourage us to do three simple things. To get to know your neighbors. Know their names. Know stuff about them so that you can pray and care with intentionality. Take the time to keep a grid of information so that you remember that stuff and maybe pull that grid out once a week during your prayer time and pray over those things for your neighbors. Take more control of your calendar. Create a little bit of more space for hospitality and make a plan to regularly practice hospitality, doing things with your neighbors. I want to encourage that this summer, and we're going to do it this way. We've done a patio night for years, and we're going to continue to do a patio night. But one of the things about our patio night, we've always gathered in the back here with bands and bounce houses and food trucks and all sorts of stuff. It's been great, but it's one of the more expensive type of things we do. It's several thousand dollars each time we do it. And if it gets rained out, or if it's too hot, then nobody comes and we've just spent a lot, uh, several thousand dollars. So we're going to do that, but we're going to do it simpler and cheaper this summer just because fellowship with us is important. Community is important with us as a church. But instead, we're going to take the money we, we've been spending on patio night. And if you have a neighborhood pool or if you want to host a, a meal for your neighborhood or some of your neighbors that you've never done and you need a little extra cash to help buy ice cream or buy some of those things, we're going to actually give you the money to do stuff in your neighborhoods this summer. Whether it's Memorial Day weekend, this next weekend you have a party, or or whether it's July 4th or or sometime over the summer, if you want to do that kind of thing and begin to practice hospitality with your neighbors in your neighborhood, and you need a little extra help to get that started financially, call me, email me, we will help you do that this summer. Let's just pause for a moment, quiet ourselves. I want you to take a moment to ask the Holy Spirit, What are you saying to me right now, specifically right now 
in this message about how you want me to grow in this most important habit of living the Christian faith, hospitality. Is it to change priorities? Is the Holy Spirit asking you to let go of something? Is the Holy Spirit asking you to, to just be intentional and make a plan and follow a plan to be hospitable? Maybe the Holy Spirit's saying, you know, you've been living next to this neighbor and you don't know their name for years. You're just, maybe what he's asking you is to go know their name this week. Just ask him, God, what is the main thing you want me to focus on to live hospitality out right now, loving those who are not like me? I'm going to give you just a second and then I'm going to pray for us. Lord, even as I talk about this, it, it seems obvious how this can enrich our lives to be loving. And it seems that this command just makes sense. It's what we long for. We long to be connected and loved and cared for and supported. And Lord, I just pray that you would bring to each one of us the joy, the pure joy of seeing the power of your Spirit show up as we do something as simple as be hospitable to our neighbors and those who are not like us, those who are not followers of you, those who do not have the same moral values or worldview as us, Lord, I pray that you would teach us to love really, really well and lead us to the joy of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you continue as we worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.